The hearts are This is episode five of Adrift NYC, a show that explores the waterways that touch the shores of New York City. Through conversations about history, science, and art, we'll see how the waterways are influencing us, how we're influencing them, and where we're both headed. In the process, you're going to get ideas for new places to explore. For those of you who are new to Adrift NYC, I've embarked on an adventure to visit 30 waterways that touch New York City and document it right here with all of you on this podcast. Today, we're going to explore the Hudson River which is probably the best-known river in New York City. Its source is high up in New York State in the Adirondack Mountains. And then the river flows all the way out to New York Bay and the Atlantic Ocean. The river touches New York City along the west side of the Bronx and Manhattan Island. The song you heard at the start was created by Lulu Krauss, specifically for you, dear listeners. You're going to hear the full version in an upcoming break, along with Lulu's original version, which is amazingly different. But first, you're going to hear some fascinating stuff about the history of the Hudson and the marine world below the surface. I have a real treat for you guys on the history front. Jean Hafner, who was the associate curator of the Hudson Rising exhibit, which was on view at the New York Historical Society Museum and Library, she gave me a personal tour of the exhibit. I want you to meet Jean. She's really, really amazing. I'm an historian, particularly interested in urban landscapes and the history of urban planning, history and theory, environmental history, and the history of science and technology. At a high level, Jean, what is the exhibit about? This is an environmental history of the Hudson River from 1825 to the present. It looks at the way that the river shaped the development of New York City and towns and cities upriver, as well as the entire nation, and vice versa, how the river was a place for thinking about environmental issues. Can I just ask why that particular year to start the history? Well, that is, 1825 is a really important year. It was the year that the Erie Canal opened and people like Thomas Cole, who's often called the founder of the Hudson River School of Painting, went up the river in 1825 to the Catskill Mountain House, which had just opened one year before. In this snippet that you're going to hear, she and I are standing in front of a map of New York City that was published by an engineer named Egbert Veal in 1865. He made this map to, to outline three types of land in Manhattan. Oh. Marshes. Yeah, let's look at that. <laughs> marshes, meadows, okay. and what he called made land. That maiden? Made land. Made land. Made okay. land. Vili was a critic, and he argued that these piers that you see around, which are the made land, for, which was constructed for shipping, mm-hmm. was actually influencing the tides of the river, and that w- he warned that it would actually impact shipping negatively. Ah. And he called them encroachments Mm -hmm. um, into the river. He also showed the location of sewer lines here. And the sewer lines jetted out into the Hudson and East Rivers. Sewage was, was, was kind of pooling in these areas and... Of course, New York City in the 19th century had ever-present diseases like cholera, mm. uh, yellow fever, mm. and other, other diseases. I think this is a great example of how visualizations of the Hudson tell stories. 
And he's telling a story about how humans have shaped Manhattan and the consequences that that could have on the landscape. This is a time when, you know, what's known as improvement, quote unquote, was a government policy. Land was supposed to be developed. It wasn't supposed to be left alone. So for, for people to start challenging that dominant way of thinking about the relationship with the landscape was a pretty big, big deal. Yeah, that's interesting. And he wasn't the first and he wasn't the only. There were many others. Were people commonly calling the River Hudson then or was it called North River? Because I see he has it marked both there. <laughs> well, by this time, people were calling it the Hudson River. It yeah. started to become... The, known as the Hudson River under the British, oh. even though Henry Hudson himself worked for the Dutch. Right. But the British kind of adopted his, his name. Jean and I then moved on to a map of the Hudson from 1890 that was made by the Army Corps of Engineers. And it mapped out all these activities like the addition of dikes in the river and dredging on the river, things that had been done since the 1830s. Then she showed me how the Department of Environmental Conservation took a satellite, a contemporary satellite photo, and they laid it over that map from 1890 to show how the river differs now compared to then. I mean, it's dramatically different. It's, it's dramatically different. Yeah, yeah. it's fascinating. It, but it looks so natural. It does. It does. Like, it's hard to imagine it not being the way it is today, but to see how, what it was more I mean, than 100 I, I think, years ago. Um, a lot of people would be familiar with the industrialization of the Hudson in terms yeah. of the industries that, that settled along the river, but... Mm-hmm to actually see that the shoreline was was modified and engineered in the 19th century is most people find that very surprising. In the last section of the exhibit, Jean walked me through the PCB problem the Hudson has been grappling with since the late 1940s, when General Electric started using PCBs at one of their plants along the river. One warning here, the museum was getting crowded by the time she and I reached this point in the exhibit, so you're going to hear a lot more background noise than you did earlier in our conversation. Polychlorinated biphenyls, mm-hmm. or PCBs, were invented by Monsanto, um, GE, General Electric, started using them at their electrical plants in the late 1940s at Hudson Falls and Fort Edwards. Um, Now, PCBs are insulating agents. They're kind of an oily substance, but they prevent electrical fires. So they served a really important purpose. Mm-hmm. The problem is that they're incredibly toxic and they seep into crevices and they're not easy to clean up or even even see. In the early 1980s, the entire Hudson River from, from the harbor up until Hudson Falls was declared a Superfund site. Now that's reserved for the most contaminated areas in the entire United States, and it's an EPA designation. Not only is it you know, one of the sites that the EPA says they will really pay attention to, uh, that the polluter has to pay for the quote-unquote cleanup. And, of course, GE fought, fought it in court for many years. It wasn't until 2009 that GE started its quote-unquote cleanup process. Between 2009 and 2015, they dredged 40 hot spots in the river that they had determined by testing sites were highly contaminated. They would dredge the material from the river. Here we show some dredgers, and they put it on a barge. They would take it to a treatment plant 
separate the sediment from the water, treat the water, put the water back in the Hudson, and then that sediment was put on trains and sent to landfills in six different places far away from New York. So the landfills that they sent it to were had the capability of, of dealing with hazardous waste mm-hmm. like this. Mm-hmm. Were any of the dredging sites for the GE cleanup in the Manhattan area? No. Like a lot in the no. lower harbor? No, it was all, all okay. up by the plants. It was, okay. Officially, they, their role in the cleanup has ended in, in 2015. Um, but a lot of organizations... Um, including the Department of Environmental Conservation, are saying that actually this isn't done. At this point in our tour, Jean was interrupted by an enthusiastic visitor to the exhibit who wanted to thank her personally for raising awareness to so many things about the Hudson River that this woman didn't know herself. It was really nice to see Jean recognized for the hard work that she put into the exhibit. Since that tour, Jean has now taken on a new role. She's the curatorial director of a new energy and nature center that is planned for Jones Beach. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can check out the work that Jean is doing these days. Next up, you're going to hear about life below the surface of the Hudson River from a marine ecologist. First, a little musical treat, which is the full version of the song that Lulu Krauss created about the Hudson River just for you, listeners. The Hudson River, the Hudson River, to come and quietly carry me, silence the frantic, love me and bury me to the Atlantic. The Hudson River, dreams and crying, the Hudson River. Take some madness, quietly carry me, silence the frantic, love me and bury me to the Atlantic. River, 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 I really love that song and can't wait for you to meet Lula Krauss, the composer and singer who created it just for this podcast. But first, I want to introduce you to Dr. Jenia Nero Maciel, who has a wealth of knowledge of the life beneath the surface of the Hudson River. Jenia is a clinical associate professor at NYU, and she received her master's and PhD degrees in ecology, evolution, and environmental biology at Columbia University, where she also earned a certificate in environmental policy. I loved Jenia's enthusiasm and in-depth knowledge of the Hudson, and I know you are going to love her too. Hi, Jenia. I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. If you could describe what type of marine environment the Hudson River is. Okay, so it's a very interesting river because it has different environments. So it's in the bottom half of it pretty much is a tidal estuary. That means that that's where the, the river meets the sea, so where fresh water meets salt water. And that is actually very good for biodiversity, uh, for life. And then further up the river, where it starts in uh, Lake Tier of the Clouds, all the way up in the Adirondacks, there it's just it's a river. If there are like three things that you'd want New Yorkers to know about the Hudson that they maybe don't know, something that's happening below the surface, what, what would they be? 
They would be, you know, why is it important? What are the threats uh, that are occurring under the water to the Hudson wildlife? And then what are the strategies to address those threats? And so I would say that it's important for many reasons. You know, one is that it provides lots of ecosystem services to people, right, uh, including just enjoying the park, enjoying the river, fisheries that, that occur higher up on the river. And then for wildlife, like I said, there's a, many, many organisms that live there, and one of them is, was oysters. And so oysters used to be very abundant here, and they actually provided food not just to wealthy people, but to, to many, many different kinds of people because they could be very inexpensive. But they got over-harvested, and uh, they also suffered from the pollution that happened to the river. And so that brings me into some of the threats that occur to this river. Like sometimes we don't think about the wildlife that lives there and why they're important. But they're all connected to each other in an ecological web. And so when something like an oyster declines, and there, there were hardly any of them after 1910, that means that the water is less clean because they play a role to filter the water. That means that other organisms don't have a place to live because their oyster reefs help provide a habitat for other organisms. And it also means that we're more vulnerable to storms, like Hurricane Sandy. If we'd have had oyster beds uh, protecting the, the shore, they would break up the wave surge. That would have helped lessen the effects of Sandy. And also if we had had wetlands that would act like sponges and absorb it. So there's been many changes. And one that's coming up is climate change, obviously, because as the glaciers melt and sea level rises, the river rises also, and then we have more flooding. So those are all the, the issues with the Hudson. And there's so much hope, though, because there's projects like the Billion Oyster Project and the River Project that are working to restore the river and bring back oysters, for example. The river's a lot cleaner now, so a lot of the pollution that had been dumped in is gone or reduced, and people enjoy the park, and so there's a lot of hope there. Those are three big things <laughs> that I think New Yorkers will be happy to hear about. And I'm going to jump to what types of marine life are in the Hudson. You mentioned oysters and, and just fish generally, but um, can you expand a little bit about what's thriving there? Yeah, so there's striped bass. There's also eels uh, in the Hudson River. So that's very interesting, American eels. There's a fish that's called a hog choker, which is sort of like a flounder, and it, it's a flat fish, and the eye migrated from one side to the other, so the eyes are both at the top. Oh, that's bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> Survival. <laughs> and that was actually given to hogs earlier on. That's why it's called a hog choker. So in the 1900s or so, uh, or earlier, that's they would catch those fish to give them to hogs to eat. And very interestingly, there's seahorses, which are actually fish, <laughs> and there's uh, lined seahorses. So there's a lot of different fish. Are there any other marine animals or fish in particular that had once thrived and, and now not doing so well in the Hudson? The The idea that comes to mind actually uh, is, is a little bit of the opposite. Like with the Hudson getting cleaner and also with more nutrients, there's actually been more of a kind of fish that whales eat. So Manhattan is the fish. That's why you may have seen recently in the newspaper that more whales have, and whales are not fish, whales are mammals, but that they've been sighted in New York Harbor. And 
part of that is because the Hudson is so much healthier and is able to sustain them more. Yeah, I have seen that in the news and I've heard people just talking about it. It's It has to be quite a sight. Very exciting. Do you think New Yorkers have any common misconceptions about the Hudson River? Yeah, one misconception is that it's a filthy river, right? It's not. It's actually, like I said, these the Clean uh, Water Act and the, the various cleanups that have happened have actually made it a pretty healthy uh, river for an urban river. That doesn't mean that there's not pollution in there. Obviously, there's all the shipping that goes on. And one thing that New Yorkers also might not realize is that just by not using a trash can, you know, just by throwing uh, something out or using a plastic bag and then not kind of keeping track of it, many times that garbage can blow into the river. And so that's a misconception that what we do on land doesn't affect the waterways. One problem that there is in the Hudson that mis- New Yorkers really might not know about is called the combined sewage overflow system because when it rains heavily, we have old infrastructure here in the city. And so what can happen is that the sewers get over overrun by rainwater. And so that discharges untreated sewage into, the, into rivers like the Hudson, also the Bronx River. And so that's an issue that we should all be aware of. But even with these threats, it's definitely can be considered a kind of a success story because it's so much cleaner than it was in the past. Is there anything like New Yorkers being aware of that overflow? Is that something to just be mindful of that maybe you wouldn't want to go kayaking after a heavy rain? Or is it something that they can do to prevent that overflow? I think there are efforts now to to address that. I think there is a new system that, that is being worked on. And so one thing is to vote, right, for, for politicians that are going to, to make environmental changes. And the other thing is to not litter. You know, that's very straightforward. New York has a plastic bag ban coming through. And to understand that that it may be a little inconvenient at first, but it actually is going to make a big difference because many organisms underwater wind up ingesting plastic bags and it can basically kill them. Like I work with sea turtles and there's no sea turtles in the Hudson River, but there are diamondback terrapins. Uh, They live in estuaries. So we just want to be extra careful with basically garbage, pollution, and any way that we can reduce, reuse, and recycle is always helpful. And I have to ask because I don't know what a diamondback terrapin is. is Does it look like a sea turtle? Not really. They're smaller than sea turtles can get quite big when they're adults. And uh, terrapins are smaller. You know, they're about maybe 20 to 30 centimeters. And they they lay their eggs in Jamaica Bay, which sea turtles don't do on the beach. They come out of the water and lay their, their eggs on land. And their sex is determined by temperature. So that's an issue with climate change that we're concerned because if it keeps getting hotter, we're going to have a lot more females. <laughs> Which may be a good thing, but on the other hand, right, we we need to balance that out with males to be able to reproduce. And so they're very, very pretty. They're called diamondback terrapins because of their their shell, which has these kind of diamond-like spread patterns. They're very pretty. That's fascinating. And so I'm going to wrap up by asking you really just what is your favorite part of the Hudson River? Where I live. (laughs) I know that's a little bit selfish, but right here in... Greenwich Village. I work here at NYU and I live nearby. And uh, it's it's my favorite part of the river because I've seen it uh, change over time. Is there a pier or anything that you particularly like to go out and, and walk and, or admire the water? Well, I like 
Pier 40 is actually just a big parking garage, but the river project is there. And that's nice because they have an open open lab over the summer. And you can just go there and they have a lot of the life from the river in tanks. And so you can see the oysters. You can see, They often have terrapins there. You can see a seahorse and see some of these fish that I've talked about. And that that's very hands-on. And so I like to go there. Hey, terrific. And I'll put a link in the show notes. And I'll also put a picture of one of the diamondback terrapins because they sound beautiful. Excellent. <laughs> and thank you so much, Jenny. If anyone wanted to learn more about you, you or your work? How could someone learn more about you or contact you? Well, you can contact me here at NYU. I have a bunch of websites. So I have a Google Scholar website. I have an NYU Liberal Studies website. And so if you just Google me, (laughs) you'll easily find those. All right. Terrific. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Before we talk to Lulu Krauss, I have one more musical treat for you. Earlier, you heard Lulu's final version of her Hudson River song. Now you're going to hear her original rendition. The Hudson River holds this city in its sleep. Slow and old, the Hudson River, dark and pretty, cold and deep, fast and bold, quietly carry me, silence the frantic, float me and ferry me to the Atlantic. Wow, isn't that an amazing difference between where Lulu started and where she ended up? I loved hearing her inspiration for this piece and her process for getting to that final rendition. Let's take a listen. Hello, Lulu, and welcome to Adrift NYC. Thank you so much for including me in this. Oh, I'm really excited to speak with you. First of all, I just have to jump and say that I loved your song. It's really beautiful. In order to write that, did you visit the river or were you doing it from like a memory of a previous visit or several visits? I actually read a lot about the river. That was the the real inspiration. I obviously see it a lot every day, but I'd never read about the history, and I didn't know much about other parts of the river that aren't touching New York City. Okay. I'm, of course, interested in the lyrics and understanding sort of what you're overarching, like what you called out there. But before I get to that, I do want to ask just what style of music is this? It was largely inspired by Madison McFerrin, who's Bobby McFerrin's daughter. And I discovered some of her music a few weeks ago. And it's It's constructed the same way a lot of Bobby McFerrin's music is, in that it's the same voice singing counter melodies and harmonies. So it's entirely a cappella, and it's just a music that I was, I grew up loving Bobby McFerrin and discovering that his daughter is making sort of updated versions of compositions that I grew up loving really inspired me creatively for this specifically. And what is your background? Are you a professional singer or can you just give listeners an understanding of of like who you are and what your background is? I grew up loving musical theater and then I moved to New York seven years ago. And since living here, I've become a little bit more of an earnest performer. So now I, I have been singing more jazz than I have in the past. It's, it's less focused on musical comedy and it's you know, I'm I'm more interested in connecting more deeply with the songs I sing, um, although I still I still 
do musical comedy. So when I perform now, I usually combine some of the musical improv I do with a few jazz standards in my shows. So back to the song. Can you just talk a little bit about the lyrics and what you were trying to call out? So I wrote the lyrics before I had a melody. And when I tried to develop a melody at first, I just had one singular melody line that I was going to try to harmonize against. And as I started working through the song in the app that I used to build it, I realized that it was more interesting and it actually moved a little bit faster if I could break down the lyrics and divide them into two counter melodies. And I thought that that actually aligned more with what I was most struck by when I was reading about the Hudson River, which is the real duality of it. Like looking at images of the river where it starts in upstate, it seems very calm and peaceful and very natural. And then, you know, my associations with it around Manhattan, I think of it as a little bit dirty. I think of it as chaotic. And I sort of associate it with like the Manhattan persona. So dividing the lyrics into these two separate counter melodies felt like a nice reflection of the duality that I picked up on when I was reading about the river. I'm intrigued by the app that you mentioned. <clears throat> does it allow you, like, how does it work? Does it allow you to create the, all the different layers of harmonies or how does that work? You record one harmony line or one melody at a time and then you build off of that. You sort of have to break down the song to the most simple element of it in order to start building it. So that usually includes either like a solid beat or a percussion before getting into backing harmonies. And then with those backing harmonies, you probably wanna start with a bass line before doing a middle or upper part of a chord. And then finally you overlay the, the real melody on top of that. But in the case of this song, there are two distinct melodies. There isn't one that is more important or m more of a solo than the other. So recording those final two melodic lines in the song was more complicated than what I've tried in the past just because I was really trying to figure out how to have those two melody lines talk to one another while recording one at a time. I can definitely sense the river when listening to it. It's really, really very nice. And and you said it's with this one maybe was a little more challenging in how you, you built this song. Um, was that because you had these two different voices kind of communicating or what, what, what was it that made it more difficult for you? Yeah, I'd never done anything like this where um, I was trying to figure out, I mean, I had this like very standard song that felt sort of boring and slow and I had to figure out how I could break it apart. Um, and then I also had to figure out how to develop like rhyme structure for these two different like melodic lines which is something I've, I've never done before, but I think it worked out well. And the way I tackled it was by just having one rhyme structure exist in one line and a totally separate one in the other line and not worrying about like being rigid about rhyming between those two different voices. Oh, well, it's really beautiful. And did you say you are going to record a, or you're making a video to go with it? Yes, it is done. I finished it. It's on my Instagram account. <laughs> oh, terrific. Thank you so much for doing this. I really can't wait to share it with everyone. Thank you. It was such a fun challenge and it, it really pushed me. I've never done anything like it and I loved it. If someone wanted to come see you perform, where, where would they find you? I perform weekly at The Magnet. I'm on a musical improv house team there every Tuesday.
No, I'm going to come check you out. That sounds really great. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Thank you again, Lulu. Thank you. Okay, everyone, that's it for this week's adventure. If you haven't been to the Hudson River, go. Really, get out there, go. Thanks for listening, everybody. And special thanks to Jean Hafner, Jenia narrow Mycel, and Lulu Krauss for participating in this podcast. And thanks, as always, to Mary Jean Stead for composing and performing our lovely theme song. If you have a second, subscribe to this podcast. It's free, and subscribing really does help other people discover the show. If you would like to connect with other Adrift NYC listeners or get in touch, you can follow me on Instagram at AdriftNYC. Thanks again for listening. Until next week, make waves, everyone. from the Tsetse Project.